0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Nina Atwood about a very fascinating book called Dirty Books, Erotic Fiction and the Avant-Garde in the Mid-Century Paris and New York, published by Manchester University Press. Nina, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Uh, before we start talking about the book, could you please briefly introduce yourself uh, to our audience? How did you become interested in history, in literature, and more importantly, how the idea of this book came about?
1: Right. OK, well, I'm an historian um, and I work mostly in the area of um, histories of sex and sexuality uh, from the Victorian to the modern period. And I, I guess I started my um my studies in the Victorian period. You know, when I was doing my PhD, um, Victorian prostitution was what I wrote my thesis on. And from there, I guess I've sort of moved a bit more into the into the modern period. But even from when I uh, was, I guess I was a so I'm a social historian, but I've also moved into the area of cultural history as well. And even when I worked on my thesis, I looked at pornography and I looked at literature. So I've always been interested in those um, different historical sources and what, what they can tell us. Um, so yeah, my interest, I suppose, in the in the sex and sexuality side of things uh, was there from the start. But um, but yeah, I became more and more interested in that discipline as um, time went on. Uh, and Barry Ray, um, who I wrote dirty books with, um, he's a social and cultural historian too. And um, he's also, well, he's published works on um, various topics across the early modern to the postmodern periods. And he also has a specialty in sexual histories. And we've written quite a few things together and, um, you know, work really well together and um he's written a lot more than I have so he's got some great books out there on called America and Sex in the Archives and New York Hustlers um work that I helped him uh research or edit in some instances but yeah you know you should check his work out it's great um so yeah we've worked on a few things together we've co-written a book with another author um Claire Gooder on sex addiction so yeah we really did or I really did sort of um Jump forward from the, the Victorian period, um, and then in recent years, um, Barry and I have worked on sort of several articles, and it's those that have led us to the Dirty Box book, or you know, this book. Um, and yeah, it's a sort of accidental sometimes when you you, you come across these ideas. But um, yeah, we wrote an article several years ago now. Um, about a moment, I guess you'd call it, in the history of gay male pornography, um, where a bunch of former college students got together in the 1990s and they wrote pornography uh, that was intended for a, a gay male audience. Uh, and these authors used, you know, male pseudonyms, but many of them were actually women. Uh, most of them were straight, and they. Uh, they wrote books that were published by uh, Masquerade and Bad Boy Books, so they're, they're publishing companies. Um, and as well as the anonymous porn, they also published some reworked classics, um, which they modified for their 1990s audience that liked their sex a bit more explicit. And it was actually doing that research where I first heard about Olympia Press and Morris uh, Girodia and um, their earlier sort of 1950s, 60s. Publishing strategies, which are a little bit some, you know, similar to what Masquerade and, and Bad Boy were doing in a way with the, the reworking of classics. Um, so that was, you know, a sort of fascinating point that um, I came across in, in that, but not what uh, Barry and I were working on. So nothing really, really came of it. But more recently, we became fascinated by. Uh, this sort of enigmatic man called Gershon Legman, um, who seems to pop up constantly um, in histories of sexuality for different reasons. He's a specialist, or he was, I should say, a specialist on erotic folklore and limericks, um, a sort of fanatical bibliographer and book collector who helped Kinsey source books for his library. This, you know, Gershon was a sex researcher. Um, he wrote the introduction to My Secret Life, which is a, a large Victorian pornographic work, um, one I actually used for my my thesis, but it's one that Grove Press published in the 1960s. So, um, you know, people might be familiar with it. But um, I think it was around 2017, something like that, that Girichon's autobiography was published and it was about five or six volumes in length. Um, This was posthumous, you know, he died in 1999. And it was in these volumes that he uh, sort of discusses experiences of writing for hire in America. So that's when we learned more about uh, this idea of um, syndicates of writers that wrote for publishing houses or anonymous collectors, you know, um, in New York at this time. And at that point, we thought we'd look deeper into this. So, uh, yeah, we Barry and I uh, sort of researched both these porn writing syndicates now, you know, remembering about Olympia Press in the 50s in Paris, um, and then this New York combine that Gershon was part of in the 30s and 40s. So we uh, wrote an article on that. We were so fascinated with uh, with Legman. We wrote an article on him as well. And then we just sort of thought, this is actually, you know, book material, really. It's, it's pretty fascinating. It also might have a uh, popular appeal as well. Um, it's always interesting, you know, sometimes to be able to take your... Your academic discussions and your your books out there, uh, but further into the into the public and um, yeah, that's sort of how the book came about and the title. If anyone's interested, um, "Dirty Books" um, comes from the series of books that um Olympia Press put out, um, which were known officially as the Traveler's Companion series, but they ended up being referred to um, by Gerodia and others, um, writing for Olympia as the DBs or the Dirty Books. So yeah, that's how that mm. came about.
2: Uh, You've touched on a lot of important points, and we we will try to unpack some of them as we go ahead. Uh, I'm particularly interested in that pornography syndicate in New York that you mentioned, but we'll talk about it. Uh, There's this publisher, Obelisk Press, in um, Paris, right? And there's an important person you talk about, Jack. Uh, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Kahan. Or yeah, I'm th- I mean, like you. Him? I
1: think it's Jack Kahn. Yes, yes, for sure. So mm. yeah, we start the book. Start the book with a chapter on um, Kahn and Obelisk Press, which um, for those um, well, I was gonna say for those that don't know. I mean, I wasn't particularly familiar with it when I started researching either. But um, uh, Jack Kahn is actually uh, Maurice Straudi's father. And um, he actually started out in the publishing business as as well, and made uh, you know some pretty important moves that his son would 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 really uh, take up and run with. So um, Jack also he was an English publisher living and working in Paris. Um, so he you know I think he was in, in textiles before that, but for our purposes we're interested in him um, as a publisher. And a writer. So we start with him. Um, he founded Obelisk Press in 1929. Um, I think he started it with a with a partner, but he ended up going out on his own. Um, and while they're sort of setting this press up, um, they publish a book that gets seized as obscene in Britain, and it sells really, really well. Um, and that you know presents him with this formula. He sort of thinks, Oh, okay, I can you know make money, make money selling. Um, sort of obscene books or, or yeah controversial books and maybe i'll be able to you know find some i don't know you know more modern writers more serious writers that, that i can sort of prop up with this sort of strategy um, and at this time, English language books um, published in France weren't sort of subject to the same censorship laws as they were in the US and the UK. Um, it wasn't a case of anything goes, obviously, um, you know, they could and they they were confiscated if found. But, you know, it was just a sort of a different space. There was a little bit of a, a freedom there. Um, So publishing English language work um, in Paris, uh, stuff that had already been banned, you know, in the UK or in the US, or that was looking impossible to publish, um, became his goal, basically, his modus operandi. And um, he was really interested in um, controversial books. You know, he put things like banned in America on the title page to advertise the fact and and appeal to readers. Um, So, yeah, his strategy and this is something that we see with, with Maurice Rodia throughout throughout our book, is um, he has this strategy as a publisher to sell, you know, lighter, racier fiction, to fund more modernist literature, basically, and, and try to discover the next James Joyce. You know, these, these these publishers did have these sort of lofty ambitions at the same time. Uh, but what, of course, is interesting is he uh, adds to this formula by wrote, writing his own novels as well, which is quite interesting, uh, under a pseudonym, of course. Mm. Um, yeah.
2: And uh, I guess in France, they were more liberal than uh, America in terms of censorship. But there was censorship in place. How did he manage to avoid uh, censorship of his dirty books, let's say?
1: Right. Well, he... I think the language thing um, is sort of important in the, in the first instance. So, like I say, he's based in Paris and he's publishing in the English language. And I, I think we're naive to to expect um, at this time, especially in the you know in the twenties, twenties uh, and early thirties, that you know everyone in the French police also knows English because they didn't. So, you know, we did this research and you you hear about you know um, the sort of interior ministry police with their lists of banned books, for example, um, and they've got to be able to you know understand the books that they come across, I guess, you know, so the fact that um, the books are in English is sort of one way. Um, but there are also some legal loopholes at the time, and things are a little bit more more liberal. Um, they don't stay this liberal, of course, and um, I know we're still sort of talking about, about Obelisk, but um, later on, for example, um, with Olympia, um Mauricestrodia would you know um, retitle books to evade the police you know he'd he called candy which is one of their one of their sort of famous um quite popular novels they'd call them lo- they'd call it lollipop um, and that was enough for a while to sort of evade um evade the police you know um, books would get disguised under false dust jackets and stuff like that so all sorts of things were attempted um, to avoid censorship and also these books um you know they're not always, always openly sold, sold in shops, you know, you've got soldiers, you've got tourists, that's the market that they were sort of being aimed at. So there's a lot of sort of underground, uh, subterranean trading and collecting and and um, transatlantic, I guess, movement with this stuff. Um, but when you get into the research, I mean, maybe less so Jack, but Morris in particular, definitely um goes through some prosecutions. You know, he definitely doesn't manage to avoid censorship, you know. Uh, but the other thing mm. with Jack Khan is he, he dies in 1939, so his publishing endeavours are uh, really only a 10-year thing. But he... Um, He does some, you know, he publishes some pretty significant stuff in that time. You know, he, um, as well as his, you know, um, they call them, or not, not they. He's been his work's been described. I think I mentioned it before. He wrote some of his own books to help fund this this publishing Mm. enterprise, um, sort of lightly erotic stuff. You know, um, I think I think his first novel might have been called Daffodil. Um, But while he's doing that, obviously, he's also um, publishing. You know, what become modern classics, right, like Ford and Tyler's The Young and Evil, you know, which had been rejected by publishers um, in the U.S., um, very significantly, you know, Obelisk um, publishes Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn and um, one of Anais Nin's books, you know, Winter of Artifice. So, mm. you know, and as well, and this, of course, you know, this is first time publishing for some of these these people. And as well as this, he's uh, he publishes other stuff that he's not the first to publish, like um, D.H. Lawrence's uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover and Radcliffe Hall's Well of Loneliness. So these books have been published and, and um Kind of up before the courts before this, but but yeah, we, this is why we start with with Obelisk. Um, mm. It's it's not the the syndicates that first got us into researching the book, but we suddenly see this publishing strategy, where it comes from. You know, the success that it um, that it has, um, especially in getting these these other books published at a time when yeah, censorship and stuff is a very real mm. you know mm. possibility.
2: Uh, you've talked about you've mentioned this syndicate, so as you mentioned, there was this pornography syndicate in the New York in 1940s, and you talk about a character, Roy Melisander. So what was this syndicate? Who was this character? And also, uh, there were apparently some pretty much well-known writers, or writers who later on became well-known who were part of this uh, syndicate. Can you talk about that a little bit more?
1: Yes, sure. So um, this is where uh, Gershon Legman's um, memoirs were, were interesting, but also, as I'll talk about in a moment, other diaries that tell us about this as well. So, what you've got in the uh, in this figure, you've got this guy called Roy Melisander Johnson is actually his name, um, and he's this oil magnate, this millionaire from um, Oklahoma. He's a private collector of pornography. Um, He has contacts across America, you know, book dealers, uh, people who are are sourcing um, and commissioning original pornographic literature for him. Um, You know, they would have their contacts out. Um, This work would be bound and sent to him. Now, from what we can tell, New York's definitely not the only Sort of um, combine or group of writers writing for Johnson. You know, you you find out what's when you're in the archives that you know there's book dealers in Chicago and, and LA, and there's no doubt lots of things happening in, in tandem there. But the the syndicate we have the most information about is this this one in New York in the forties. Um, so, yeah, like I say, Mel, uh, Roy Melisander Johnson, he's, he's a fairly anonymous figure at the time. People sort of don't know who he is. He's referred to as, you know, the collector and its intermediaries that, that we um, hear about a lot as well. Um, so the point is he thinks he's uh, commissioning original pornographies for his own personal use, right? And he's, you know, paying sort of, you know, money per page, one to two dollars per page for these um, 50 page um, pieces of work. Um, and funnily enough, we find and you find in the archives that, um, you know, writers at the time took carbon copies of their work and some actually eventually sold it or, or book dealers did. Um, and we don't really know about his name um, or his role in the syndicate until after he dies. Right. So that's the that's the Johnson side of it, but yes, um, you know, as you mentioned, there's some pretty well-known writers um, in the syndicate. So this is where we get some connections with um, with Kahn and Obelisk as well is that Henry Miller is supposedly um, one of these writers. Um, um, interestingly, the the degree of his involvement sort of up for debate, and we talk about it in the book. But you know, he, he definitely writes something for this collector, um, as does Anais Nin. Um, Gershon Legman, of course, um, and we hear a lot about um, you know a lot about his sort of dealings with the book collector and, and his memoirs. But there's other figures too. there's the the writer Bernard Wolf, um, the poet. Robert Duncan, I think, uh, Caress Crosby, she was a publisher, and the artist Virginia Admiral, and for those who don't know, she's uh, Robert De Niro's mother. Um, So there's this, you know, group of artists and poets, Um, many of them know each other, and in the case of Nin and and, um, Crosby and Admiral, you know, this is sort of a group of, a group of friends, you know, writers and friends sort of, you know, in the same social milieu. Um, yeah, so pretty, pretty, pretty famous, really, um, and like I say, probably just one one group that that was doing this this for Johnson, um, and we hear about um, some of the experiences of of writing for this this collector, and not just in Gershon's memoirs, but you know also in um, Anaïs Nin's diaries, um, which is really you know, fascinating to watch that. Um, that interplay, I guess, between you know her her diary writing and the writing that she does for Johnson and how that develops over time, you know. Mm.
2: And, and you've you've mentioned Maurice uh, Gerodius several times, and I'm interested also to know more about the role of Olympia Press, in uh, they obviously created some pornography, but also some experimental literature. So who was Maurice uh, Gerodius? And yeah, so also the, yeah?
1: Yeah, no, so Gerodius, I think I mentioned it before, he's actually Jack Khan's son, so he doesn't sort of take over obelisk. There's, you know, a bit of time in between. But in the, the 50s, um, Gerodius starts um, Olympia Press, essentially. Um, same sort of business formula as his father. You know, he's he's going to sell sex books to sort of fund the publication of innovative modern books. Because even with Jack Kahn, as you could see with what, you know, yes, he was interested in controversial work. But, you know, they're wanting to be, you know, uh, you know, for example, Khan gets Miller. You know, Gerodius wants to to have his Miller, his Joyce as well. You know, it's discovering new talent as well. But um, he really goes for this, you know, pornography side of things as well, which is why we have this sort of treasure trove of of books um, that we essentially write about in the book. Um, but yeah, there's a couple of different things going on there, which is you know, which is interesting. So, like I mentioned. Um, there's these dirty books or this traveller travellers Companion series, but he also had other um, imprints under Olympia, I think, stuff like, I think it was called Ophelia books and Othello books, but uh, Olympia is sort of the, the main one. Um, and of course, the erotica is more explicit this time. You know, we're in the sort of 50s now. Morris is a bit more out there. Um, he hires. Yeah, we're, in, we're in Paris, right? And he's uh, we're talking English language pornography. Still here. We're not talking about. Um, we're not primarily. We're not talking about stuff in French. Although there's a lot of a lot of different things going on here. But um, girodius is hiring young expat American and English writers, um, translators, poets, these sorts of people living in Paris. You know, um, some of them are already involved in, in trying to publish their own their own stuff. But a lot of them are, are struggling um, in terms, you know, financially, right? Um, so he's getting these people basically to write write these books for him and and again um, there are some names that people will recognize others they won't you know there's the poet uh, Christopher Logue um, and Canadian poet John Glasgow is involved in some of these Terry Southern who becomes a well-known screenwriter. Um, an artist Norman Rubington these are just some of the figures that um, Morris sort of has around him at this time and um, Marilyn Mees, Iris Owens, many, many others, really. Um, so yeah, under the, under this imprint, this Olympia imprint, essentially, Gerodius is uh, yeah selling, selling erotica of all types of quality, essentially. Um, to and of course again trying to to find his um his big sort of his his big breakthrough, which he gets with uh, Nabokov's Lolita. So, um, and this is you know one of the sort of points about dirty books, as well as to sort of show people this sort of literature, you know, what, what was being written, um, is also to sort of remind people or let people know that, um, you know, these publishers um, who aren't that well-known anymore uh, actually did some really significant stuff. And of course, publishing Lolita was huge for for um, Gerodius. You know, he's, he's wanting to break new talent and the more controversial, the better. And of course, Nabokov had been trying to get Lolita published elsewhere and um, wasn't having any luck. And of course, it's not just Nabokov that um, gets published by Olympia. You know, there's work yeah. by, as time goes on, you know, Samuel Beckett, more Henry Miller, um, Jean Genet, William Burroughs, Lawrence Durrell. So, um, you know, you've, you do have this sort of uh, the innovative avant-garde sort of modern lit- literature coming out of Olymp- Olympia, but you've also got these, um, all these Traveller's Companion or dirty books as well. And, you know, we're talking mid-50s to mid-60s in in Paris here because, of course, uh, Gerodis is going to end up doing the same thing in in New York a bit later. But, you know, there's nearly 200 titles that get published by Olympia at this time, you know. Um, uh, Yeah, solid offering of pornographic work, you know. Um, And, of course, something we we talk about in the book, you know, is that um, we're not sort of just talking about, pornographic work at one end and, you know, works of modern literature at the other, but that um, both of these sort of types of, of work can be considered experimental, you know. And of course, you know, pornography sometimes is in the, uh, the eye of the ear of the beholder, you know. Um, some of the books aren't actually particularly pornographic at all. Um, you know, there, there's a lot sort of happening in between here. So, um, and of course, we're interested as sexual historians are in just the different ways that authors write about sex and considering we've, you know, we're talking about the 30s and the 40s and now the 50s and the 60s, um, it's sort of this is the period we're focusing on in the book, that, that mid-period before the, the sexual revolution where you expect sex to be more mainstreamed and for sex and literature to be uh, more out there, more on scene, um, more obvious. It's sort of, uh, this is the that evolutionary development before that.
0: slash nbn50 to
2: get 50% off. Mm. And um, the, the, the title of your book, it's, it's uh, Dirty Books, uh, Erotic Fiction and Avant-Garde uh, Literature. So I'm interested to know more about the role of uh, pornography, how it's related to avant-garde literature in the context of your research
1: okay well one of the points that we where we try to get across because um, you know the term pornography makes people think of all sorts of things you no. know I mean and, and it's basic sense I guess you know you think of it as a uh, I mean I should probably point out obviously and for anyone out there that that studies it it's a very historically contingent sort of a term right it's it's a uh, changes historically, what it means, how you identify it, define it, that sort of thing. But we all think of it, I suppose, as the explicit sort of representation of sex, right? Whether it's, um, you know, visual or or literature. And we're talking about literature here, but what we've got here with the subtitle of the book is that, you know, pornography can be avant-garde, right? So when we talk about things being avant-garde, we're talking about them being innovative, experimental, you know, somewhat outside whatever aesthetic or uh, ideological norms there are at, at a time you know and what we have with the writers these olympia writers and probably many other writers at the time is that the avant-garde can be pornographic too you know like some you know you could have experiment experimental innovative books with sex in them you know and and that sex can be can be explicit it can be more implicit um, so for us it's the fact that like i say porn can be avant-garde and the avant-garde can be pornographic right so sex can be used explicitly in uh, modern or avant-garde stories um, to different ends really Um, and you know and in different ways i guess I'm, i'm saying as well you know i mean many of the authors that wrote for olympia for example uh, like like I say, like the stuff for Bad Boy that sort of got us interested into it in the first place, you've got anonymity, right? You've got pseudonyms being used and they really provided, I mean, yes, on the one hand, you know, hiding from, you know, uh, prosecution, I, I suppose, and being identified, but also a real freedom to experiment, you know, so we saw that in some of those 1990s bad boys works in in a much later period, but um, whether it was straight or that sounds obvious or or basic, but, you know, straight authors writing gay porn, but it's women writing as men, it's vice versa. Um, And of course, when we're talking about the 50s, this is even more experimental, it's it's pre-sexual revolution, you know. Um, And, you know, many of the porn authors, like I think I mentioned, were young artists and writers, okay, so they're, you know, they're um, already sort of trying to hone their craft. And most of them, you know, probably used the pornography to hire um, as one of the many jobs they did to earn a living, you know, especially those expats in in Paris and even those in New York in the 60s. But um, you've got others like Nabokov, for example, who was trying to find a publisher for their work, um, which others wouldn't touch. So this is that other connection to the avant-garde obviously. So um, and then of course you've got uh, writers like, like Miller and Nin where the pornographic and the avant-garde were part of their style as well. You know, you could you can find those elements in, in, in their work and we use this term and I think it's Lauren Glass's term but this term in the book aestheticized obscenity and I think it's a great way of encapsulating you know the possibilities of that relationship you know between pornography and, and avant-garde literature you know you're not, not talking about this binary you know um, this idea that um, modernism I suppose employed the sexually graphic in the service of literary innovation so that's the that's the relationship we're, we're interested in
2: and uh, w- when I was reading your book something that was really really interesting to me was the role of Olympia Press in translating or maybe bringing back some of the classic literature, the 18th century erotic writing. And uh, it was, I guess, a few months ago, I was talking to another author about a book that was recently published called uh, Sex and Social Protest, which was about erotic writing in the 18th century uh, literature. Now, uh, I'm I'm interested to know what kind of uh, classic literature or 18th century literature they brought back what works were translated or maybe reworked? Uh, that would be great if you could talk about that aspect of uh, the book.
1: Right. Well, yes. So that's that's something, yeah, quite interesting that um, that Jerodius does here. So, yeah, he essentially uh, brings back, no, not brings back eighteenth-century writing, but but yeah, really, really uses some old classics to, I guess, from a financial sense, you know, to bolster up his offering. But um, the fact of the matter is that you know there's a real pivotal role here that Olympia, uh, Olympia Press has in the publication of the Marquis de Saad, for example, um, in English. So um, remember, we're back in the in the mid 50s now. So Olympia is not the first to translate Saad. you know. The, it was being done in French at the time, and a bit earlier. But the author doing it in French is actually being prosecuted for it in the 40s. Um, and I, I think some authors had had made some sort of inroads as well in the in the 19th century. But what you get with Olympia is the sort of uh, first move to do it systematically and and more wide ranging, you know. And um, two of these two of the authors, and as part of this um, sort of expat circle that. Uh, Gerodius has has around himself in the um, in the beginning is a couple of figures called uh, Richard Seaver and Austrin Wainhouse. Now, I think they're already um, translating Sard, you know, in their own time on the side before they meet uh, Gerodius. But he gets wind of this. He thinks, you know, I'm, you know, obviously just imagining. He thinks, oh, this sounds great, you know. Desard's obviously. Uh, Obviously controversial, you know, in the extreme, you know, um, and you know he he commissions these uh, these authors to to do to do these translations and um, and Olympia puts them out um, and that's sort of how how it starts and you get these really seminal works by Saad getting translated um, and being translated well, you know, um, by you know pretty serious people taking the task really seriously. So, we, you know, we get Juliet, we get Justine, um, we get 120 Days of Sodom, um, Philosophy in the Bedroom. Um, but also, you know, there's also other important works, uh, 18th century works um, that Olympia republished. So John Cleland's Fanny Hill or Memoirs of, of a Woman of Pleasure. That's the, one of those classics of the porn Torn Canon, um, and he, he even goes beyond the eighteenth century too, and and um, he republishes or publishes uh, translations of Apollinaire, and Bataille and, and Aubrey Beardsley, and works like Tallany, um, who Oscar, Oscar Wilde was uh, supposedly the author of, but but unlikely we would say, and the story of O. So, yeah, a really really important role I would say um, Olympia Press has, and 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 push it, you know in translating Saad, right? And also repurposing these these classics. Um, and I'm just trying to think. I d don't know if, if I'd say that they were reworked as much as just systematically solidly translated and and you know becoming part of the the Olympia stable, which is quite interesting in, in many ways too. You know, you mentioned the the recent book about sex and social protest, because mm. um, a lot of Saad's work, for example, is, it's pretty anti-establishment. You know, it's it, he runs some pretty extreme stuff in there, but he's also constantly railing against um, um, sort of hypocrisy and repression. And he's, you know, pushes the sex positivity line. And Gerodius, um, funnily enough, really, really took um, censorship uh, and, and him being anti-censorship really seriously. So the appeal of this 18th century literature and its sort of um, philosophical function, you know, that sort of function it had in the 18th century, um, you sort of get that. But also sometimes you, you wonder when you think of these these sailors and um, the soldiers, and sailors, and the tourists buying the books. That you know, it, it's hard to know, right? What what Olympia's um, readers wanted. You know, some of the some of the stuff inside is, um, it's well, some of it's obviously really, really violent. You know, and you know, perhaps too extreme for people. But also, it's you know, can be incredibly dated too <laughs> in what they talk about. So, um, but it's just one of those other strategies. Um, not just a strategy, I think, for 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 Olympia, but it actually became something that you know, they've got a really important role in, you know, and a lot of these works continue to be republished by other publishing houses later, right? So Grove Press becomes one of the, the more well-known 1960s publishers of this stuff, and funnily enough or ironically enough with Wayne House and Seaver, actually, but it's it's the role that, you know, their work played with Olympia in that earlier period, which is which is really significant, you know?
2: Mm. Um, and Olympia Press, it was sort of modeled after its Parisian counterpart in um the olympia press in new york H- how was it similar or maybe different to this Paris- parisian
1: counterpart right so yes yeah, so Morris moves to new york right so he sort of gets chased mm. out of chased chased out of france so, so to speak you know he's getting prosecuted um quite a bit there for uh for his work he's also running out of money he's um you know, we don't talk about it a lot in the book, but he's. Why don't we do? We, we do touch on it, but he's his business practices are pretty pretty sketchy. Um, you know, his contracts or lack of contracts with authors, but essentially he wants to move to more positive climes and um, where he sees things being a bit more liberal. So he, he moves to New York and sets up an Olympia press there. So we're talking um, mid to late sixties now, I think it was 1967 to to 1974. And it's sort of similar and different, you know, I mean, similar in the sense that he, he's going to, he's pushing the same strategy, you know, he's going to, um, he's going to use, you know, use the erotic stuff and, Keep up this constant search for you know, I don't want to say better quality, but I'm trying to think his glorious or authors he used to he used to refer to them as, but um, he he does this move and he actually republishes about thirty of the Paris Olympia titles anyway, so he actually sort of you know brings part of his catalogue with him, so there's some crossover there, and um, he has you know. A, a, he had that sort of expat group around him in, in Paris and in New York. He gets ghost writers, um, ghost writers in. Um, some of them end up writing under well-known Olympia names. So there's um an author called Marcus Van Heller, who was uh, originally John Stevenson, I think a British civil servant, but um, the Van Heller novels are, are quite quality novels and that sort of porn range that he does and uh, Olympia New York ends up putting out a lot more under the same name, not authored by Stevenson this time, but, but by ghost writers. Um, and he puts a call out for new authors when he's in America. So he, I guess he does this via literary agents. But we know he, he puts out ads in The Village Voice in New York as well and, and commissions people, you know, like he did um, in the past. And, you know, you get the same range, <laughs> range of style from, uh, and range of uh, quality, I should say, um, you know, from the pretty bad to the really good. Um, there's some standout authors again in this new stable, and I guess I'm talking about the, the pornographic stuff now. Um, uh, Marco Vasi, for example, um, writes quite a few books um, for Olympia. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's quite a there's quite a few good, you know, really great authors that come out at this point. Um, we actually interviewed Sharon Rudal um, for the book, and she's a well-known um, American visual artist. Um, and she told us, you know, um, as Nin and others have said, you know, regarding their own um, porn writing for hire, you know, about that financial imperative, right, that draws them into it in the beginning, but also what it what it did for them. Um, you know, it was a chance to write and it was a chance to be published, to sort of rebel and to make money and to express themselves and their sexuality. And um, Rudale writes some really great Olympia books, actually, you know, they're really good. And um, this New York Iteration actually publishes about 400 titles, so that's, you know, twice as as many um, that were published as in Paris. Um, And of course, this time, um, you know, I suppose Girodi is still sort of railing against censorship, but he also feels that, Paris you know the Paris Olympia did that you know he, he says we dismantled censorship essentially uh, with the Paris iteration um, but he really does see the the New York Olympia as being part of the the sexual revolution you know this is the the first sort of half of the 60s um, and you know he says the New York office is all about normalizing the erotic and creative writing so that's sort of the difference you know the similarities and the differences
2: Um uh, Another question I have is about Henry Miller. He's one of the famous authors that you talk about in the book. I, I, I'd like to know how maybe you differentiate between high literature and just pop erotica or where you see the works of Henry Miller. Is he more famous for its literary merit or for the, for, for the erotic qualities of his uh, fictions?
1: Right. Yeah, well, it's definitely not an easy differentiation. (laughs) I think this, I mean, you know, everybody thinks they know. It's like, oh, you know, I I know pornography, you want to see it? Or, you know, obviously there's obviously high literature Mm. and and, and pulp literature, but I don't think it, yeah, it's not not always an easy differentiation. And I don't think it has to be, you know, Um, it it can be quite subjective. You know, Um, pornography itself is inherently, you know, hard to define. Um, And we talk a lot in the book about, Um, sort of boundaries being blurred Um, that, you know, I was like you and I were saying before how written pornography can have avant-garde elements in it and sort of vice versa, you know. Um, And of course, I think, I mean, this is uh, slightly different to what, what you're asking, but you've even got the other relationship between high literature and pop erotica going on here. So you've got um, publishers like Kahn and Gerodius actively building up um, the erotic side of their business to help launch the careers of what they see as their more serious writers, you know? So there's that relationship there. Um, And I think, Henry Miller, Anais Nin as well, they're kind of perfect examples of those who I think straddle the divide, really, between, um, I don't really want to say high literature, but yeah, literature, I suppose, and and erotica. And again, you know, popular erotica uh, can be hard to define too, but both Nin and Miller are famous for their literary aspects, as well as their erotic quality. You know, you don't tend to find them only being talked about one of those. Um, There's obviously disagreement out there as to their relative merits. You know, there are people that can't stand uh, their work, um, others that just, you know, they just love it, you know. And I think that's the appeal. They're really interesting figures. Um, and I think, you know, uh, that's what makes the Obelisk Press, you know, and the Olympia Press and their take on that whole smart versus serious literature differentiation, um, um, pretty interesting. And it's kind of what, well, it is. It's one of the things our book sort of aims to do with all the examples, right? So if anyone gets a hand on the book, you know, you like pornography inherently is, you know, it's there's a lot of boring, I'm not, I say boring, boring examples because the repetition of sex acts is, you know, is boring. But the point is that, you know, it shows how varied the, I can't believe I didn't mean to say the book was boring, but you know what I mean? It's lots and lots of examples yeah. to sort of show people how varied the different grades or types of pornographic writing can be, right? You know, just through the study of these particular publishing houses, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's not always easy to to accumulate these sort of works if anyone's interested in reading them. So that's sort of what we want to do is offer a bit of a window in there as it were, and to let the writing speak for itself, you know? Um, and I think I said earlier too, so, you know, you've got to, you've got to remember that, um, these words like obscenity and, and pornography, um, they are historically contingent sort of thing. So they're always yeah, contested, yeah. you know. And like I say, some people will think a piece of writing is trash and someone else will see those innovative elements in it, you know. It's in the eye mm-hmm. of the beholder, I guess. Yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, another very important part of your book is... Uh, the role that they, these erotic fictions, these erotic novels, played in foreshadowing the sexual revolution of 1960s. Uh, We'd appreciate if you could talk about that part of your book as well.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, we we really do see these works, and of course, this you know our, our books looking at the sort of 30s to the 60s, but not you know uh, not everything that's done, right? We're focusing on these particular uh, publishing houses, but we really do see them as you know a literary arm um, or a strand of the sexual revolution, as it were, you know, there's a, a larger process of mainstreaming sex, which is going on across the 20th century. You know, we all, you know, there isn't this sudden revolution in 67, you know, where sex is, you know, on scene and, and this, you know, there really is an evolutionary aspect to what we know about the sexual revolution of, of the late sixties and um, changes were happening in different areas of life, you know, that are coming to fruition. But things have been simmering away before that. And, you know, the sexual revolution obviously has sex there in the title. So it's this role of, you know, that sex plays in, in who we are and and our culture. And, you know, whether it's using sex to entertain or to shock or to make political statements, you know, um, that way that uh, sex is central to self or identity. Um, even when it's destabilising the idea of of sexual identities, some of the um, Olympia books uh, do this as well. You know, um, these representations, I guess, of polymorphous sexuality. So there's a lot going on in these books that that is is foreshadowing. It's it's exploring and using sex in in literature to to make points or just to exercise the writer's craft, even. Um, and then the anonymity that you get, the fake authorship that you get in some of these erotic novels or many of these erotic novels, um, you know, provided freedom of, of sexual expression. I mean, it's not just to um, hide who you are or, you know, you've written this bad book, you know, but it's a way to, to experiment. It's, it's a license to subvert, you know, to use obscenity to make a point, which, funnily enough, is what they were doing in, you know, in the 18th century context. So... Yeah, we we really see see these works and these publishing houses as um, part of the history, I suppose, of sexual explicitness in literature. we don't focus a lot on it, but it's, it's the struggles with censorship that you have in the 20th century as well. You know, these um, evolving attitudes, um, debates around how to define and regulate obscenity, you know, these are all strands of the sexual um, revolution. And, you know, Gerodius really saw himself in Olympia as spearheading a campaign to overthrow censorship, um, uh, censorship laws and restrictive old fashioned sexual attitudes. I mean, he's, clearly a businessman, you know, and I mean, there'll be plenty of people out there that will have a more cynical take on that and, you know, we're obviously aware of that as well, but we're trying to focus on the the, the literary history, I suppose, how these texts fit. Um, and, you know, erotic publishing really took off. Um, from the 60s, you know, and many of the Olympia books, the Saad translations in particular, they get pirated, they get republished by other publishing houses, you know. Uh, So our book's sort of about showing how these are important moments, you know, they're important authors, they're important books, you know, they really are part of that larger history.
2: It's uh, quite interesting because uh, the the book that I told you about a few minutes ago, six and uh, Social Protest, so that focuses on 18th century literature, but the chapter of the book is about how many of that 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 literature was kind of rewritten or republished in the 20th century, and the author again does point to uh, you know that sexual revolution and also second wave feminism in the 1960s and 70s how those novels sort of foreshadowed. So when I was reading your book, I was also reminded of uh, that book as well.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Uh, Dr. Nina Atwood, thank you very much for your time, uh, for speaking to us about your great book on New Books Network.
1: Thank you for having me.